Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You know when you read about how much your body benefits from eating smarter, including healthy proteins, being keto-friendly, or maybe just being more conscious with your calories— They usually don't tell you that you're nearly required to become some sort of amateur chef or at minimum spend a lot of time searching for recipes and ingredients. That is, unless you know about Factor. The ready-to-eat meals at Factor are not only delicious, but they're great for you. And they can also be ready in just two minutes. Do you have two minutes to feel so much better about what you're putting into your body? I bet you do. There are over 35 different options to choose from. There's no prepping, no cooking, no chopping ingredients. You just heat it up and enjoy it. Factor is full of fast, premium options, and being a part-time chef, not required. Head to factormeals.com 10MM50 and use code 10MM50 to get 50% off. That's code 10MM50 at factormeals.com 10MM50 to get 50% off. Discretion is advised. Ten minute murder. Most of us as children were taught about stranger danger, to fear unknown people. A mother squeezes her child's hand a little tighter when a stranger walks by. The neighbors wonder about a person that lives in the house with the uncut grass and the aluminum foil on the windows. Teen girls are cautioned not to walk by vans that you can't see inside. And as long as we avoid those situations, we should be safe, right? Not necessarily. John Norman Chapman was born on June 17, 1947 in Windsor, Ontario. His father was Canadian and his mother was American. He was the youngest of three children. His father was an abusive alcoholic and he left shortly after John was born. His mother soon remarried and her second husband was also an abusive alcoholic who took a lot of his anger out on John. His mother left and relocated the family to Detroit, Michigan. It was there that she met William Collins. Perhaps the third time would be the charm, so his mother married again. Not only did she take Collins as her last name, but her children did as well. The third marriage only lasted a few years. And even though his childhood was pretty traumatic, he grew up to be quite the all-American young man. 
John attended St. Clement Catholic High School, where he was an honor student, captain of the football team, and star pitcher of the baseball team. After graduating, he attended Eastern Michigan University. He majored in elementary education. He joined Theta Chi fraternity. He worked out and even landed a few modeling gigs. He loved motorcycles. What college girl wouldn't want to go on a date with him? The town where John lived was full of college co-eds, and it was the 60s. Most of the young adults were enjoying life, although very few of them had their own cars, so they hitchhiked. But on July 9, 1967, Mary Flazar, a 19-year-old accounting student, disappeared. A witness said that a blue and gray Chevrolet offered her a ride, and she refused. The vehicle left, but then returned. Her body was later found near a farm in Superior Township on August 7th. Mary had been stabbed more than 30 times, beaten. Part of her hand was missing, and her feet had been severed at the ankles. Her body was so decomposed that they couldn't tell if she had been raped, and they had to use dental records to confirm her identity. The investigators noticed she had not been killed in that location, but had been moved around the area. At the funeral home, a man asked if he could take a picture of the body in the casket for the family. The employees denied the request. The employees noted that that man left angry and that they didn't even see a camera. Then, on July 5th, 1968, construction workers found the body of a woman on the roadside in Ann Arbor. The body found was 20-year-old Joan Shell, a local art student. Joan had been raped, and she was stabbed 25 times. Her skull was fractured, her throat was slashed, and her skirt was tied around her neck. Due to the similarities, they assumed that her case was related to Flazar's. Her roommates had reported her missing on June 30th. Joan was hitchhiking and accepted a ride from a guy driving a red and black Pontiac Bonneville. Her roommate even helped the police form a sketch. They questioned 150 owners of red and black Bonnevilles, but didn't find a lead. They interviewed Shell's neighbors. The neighbor across the street, John Collins, matched the sketch. He said that he'd never met Joan and was at his mother's that weekend of June 30th. The police did not confirm that alibi. On March 20th, 1969, Jane Mixer, a 23-year-old law student, went missing after she posted the need for a ride to Muskegon on a bulletin board. Her body was found the next day on top of a grave in the Denton Cemetery. She was clothed and had not been beaten or raped, but she had been shot in the head. There were similarities to the previous murders. She was a local student and she had something around her neck, so investigators assumed the cases were connected. Just a few days later, on March 25th, a naked and mutilated body was found by a surveyor, just a few hundred yards from where they found Joan Shell's body. One third of her skull was fractured. Some kind of leather strap had been used to whip her body. Her garter belt had been tied around her neck. A piece of her shirt had been pushed down her throat and a tree branch was shoved into her vagina. The body was soon identified as Marilyn Skelton, a 16-year-old that had been seen hitchhiking the day before. After Skelton's murder, police from five jurisdictions formally combined resources in an effort to solve these crimes. Although they had exchanged some information before, they had not officially been working together. It wouldn't be long before they had yet another victim on their board. On April 16th, 
the body of 13-year-old Don Basom was found on a desolate road in Ypsilanti. Dawn had been at a friend's house the night before and only had to walk about five blocks alone to get home, but she never made it there. She had been stabbed, slash wounds across her body, and a handkerchief was in her mouth. Her blouse, along with an electrical flex, were wrapped around her neck, but there was no sign of sexual assault. The investigators believed she was killed 100 yards away in an old farmhouse where they found blood and articles of clothing. They even found Skelton's missing earring there. This added to their theory that the murderer was revisiting the sites. Then on May 13th, the farmhouse burned to the ground. The police stated that it was an act of arson. Did the murderer burn it down? Maybe. They found five recently cut lilacs arranged on the driveway, mimicking a memorial site. But the Michigan murderer was not done. On June 9th, another body was found. Her throat had been slashed, she had been stabbed multiple times, and she was shot in the head. The pathologist believed that she was also raped after death. Her clothes were scattered and her shoe was missing. The body was that of Alice Kalam, a 21-year-old student going to college to better understand social relationships. She had been last seen at a party a couple of nights before. Besides Mixer, she was the only other victim to have a gunshot wound. By July of that year, over a thousand convicted sex offenders had been interviewed and thousands of leads investigated. Sales drastically increased of tear gas, knives, and security locks. Hitchhiking slowed down, and many females accepted a buddy system when walking around. The police knew the suspect preferred Caucasian brunette females. Beyond that, they had little to nothing to go on. Eventually, the Michigan murderer would make an error, and then they would find him. On July 23rd, Susan Bideman, an 18-year-old student, was reported missing by her roommate. Her body was found three days later off Huron River Parkway. She was nude, had been strangled, and had lacerations so severe that strips of her skin had been ripped off. A caustic substance had been poured over her upper body and down her throat. Susan had been raped and her underwear had been pushed into her vagina. They also found semen and clippings of hair that did not belong to the victim on her underwear. The police expected the killer to return to the site, so they forced a media blackout, keeping the murderer from knowing that the body had been found. They placed a mannequin at the site and set up watch. After midnight, a man was seen running away from the site, but due to heavy rains, the officer couldn't make out a description. He tried to call it in, but the storm caused interference with the radios. When investigators investigated and retraced Susan's steps, they found a wig shop. The owner told them that Susan had come in and was with a man on a motorcycle. Diana Ghosh said the young woman told her that she only had done two things foolish in her life, buying a wig and accepting a ride from the stranger on the bike. When Diana described the man, one of the patrolmen thought that the man sounded like former Theta Chi brother John Collins. He got photos from one of Collins' old girlfriends and showed them to the shop owner. She was sure Collins was the man she saw that day. On July 27th, investigators went to Collins' apartment and asked him to go to the police station with them. Collins refused. The next night, 
Colin's roommate saw him carrying out a box wrapped in a blanket. He saw a woman's shoe and a purse in the box. Two days later, the police showed up with a search warrant, but didn't find any physical evidence linking Collins to the other crimes. Collins' uncle was a sergeant on the police force, David Leak. He was notified of his nephew's suspect status before the arrest. He had just returned from a trip, and Collins had been house-sitting to care for their dog. David's wife had noticed some weird things in their basement. He realized his basement might be related to the case. In the Leak's basement, investigators found blood that matched Susan's blood type and hair clippings that matched the ones on the underwear. On August 1st, John Collins was formally arraigned. In early August, Washtenaw County was contacted by investigators in Salinas, California. It was discovered Collins was in California during the time of another murder. Roxy Phillips, a 17-year-old, was found naked, beaten, and strangled with a belt around her neck. On August 5th, the cases were formally connected, although John never went to California for trial. In August of 1970, John Collins was unanimously found guilty of the first-degree murder of Susan Bynaman and sentenced to life in prison without parole. While in prison, he started writing letters to the press and even let investigators come in for more interviews. He revealed disturbing information that often confirmed their decades-old suspicions. He makes his home in G. Robert Cotton Correctional Facility and corresponds with quite a few women. In 2001, with new DNA testing available, Mixer's case was reopened and the DNA on the stockings produced a match. Gary Leiterman, a former nurse, was charged with Mixer's murder. So how many actual victims did John Collins have? No one except Collins is sure. If the officers would have had a search warrant in hand at their first visit, they might have found whatever items Collins got rid of in that box. What we do know is that looks can be deceiving, and John Collins preyed on young women with his trustworthy smile. The Michigan murderer, or Ypsilanti Ripper, is off the streets, but still in our nightmares. That's 10-Minute Murder for today. Brief and bingeable true crime. I'm Joe, I'm the host, and I really appreciate you listening today. And yes, I've been sick. I still sound sick, but I am not currently sick. I guess I am sick. I don't know. I feel fine. I'm at the point where I stop taking medicine every four hours. I hate doing that. Uh, so I, maybe I stopped doing that a little bit too soon. I might recover a little bit faster if I were to keep taking the medicine, but... I can't stand, I'd rather eat a five by seven rug than to take four hour, every four hours take medicine. That drives me crazy. Anyway, I feel great, but I sound like this. Sorry, or you're welcome. And hey, if you're brand new to 10 Minute Murder, welcome to the podcast. Glad that you're here. Please subscribe now so that you can more easily catch up on all the back episodes and connect with me on social media. See the pictures of what we're talking about here in the podcast. And it's not gross stuff. I don't like to post graphic things to social media. I don't like to look at it, no less post it. Uh, and if you like this episode, please leave a rating and review on Apple, Spotify, any place that that's possible. And quickly, it is spooky month and the whole month of October, uh, if you share this podcast, I've mentioned it before, if you share this podcast with other people in your social media feed, like on Facebook, if I were to post the pictures and links, the listening links to this story that we're talking about today, if you share that, 
screenshot it, send it to me, and at random, multiple people throughout this month, I'm gonna send you a Target gift card. And you'll know if you're selected because I'll send you a message and say, hey, congratulations, Target gift card, what's your address? And I'll send it to you. So make sure you do that. It doesn't have to be uh, the post of the episodes. It can be anything to do with the podcast. Just share it, screenshot it, send it to me in a message. All right, that's gonna do it. That is today's episode. Thank you so much for listening to 10 Minute Murder. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.